Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And our guest this time is journalist and writer turned biographer Jasper Rees. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, great to have you. Uh, Your biography um, is about one of the great comedians of recent times who has taken from us rather too soon. It's an odd choice given the other books you've written and it must be some kind of personal fascination. Who is it and what's your kind of connection or passion? Uh, my biography is of Victoria Wood, the great, the one and only, the unique Victoria Wood, um, who I first met in the late 90s uh, when she was making Dinner Ladies. And uh, she is not, she has nothing in common with uh, the uh, other biographies that you have uh, briefly, although mm. namelessly alluded to. And the less we say about them, the better. Arsene Wenger uh, and is it Shackleton? Arsene Wenger, who yeah. in, a, in a previous life in the early 90s, uh, I was a football reporter on Saturdays mm-hmm. and I gave that up after a few years. And then a publisher said, will you do a biography because one doesn't exist. So I did do one. It didn't take me that long. It was, mm. It's yeah. still in print, weirdly. Uh, and um, But that was a long time ago. It came out in 2003. And then when that Florence Foster Jenkins biography was coming, uh, uh, the film, the biopic was coming out with Meryl Streep, I was asked if I would... Uh, like to write that biography at high speed because I had written a book about about uh, incompetent musicianship. So I was thought to be an appropriate choice. And I wrote that uh, at kind of warp speed. In wow. But this Goodness. was a rather more um, intense and uh, long form project. Uh, I signed a contract to start doing it in, in the summer of 2018. And I we're still kind of working on the text after having handed in the first draft right. uh, yeah. this summer. So it took two years, really. Goodness me. Interesting. It's a... Actually, there are, um, think, thinking about them, those three people, um, I, I can see kind of a link with Arsene Wenger in as much as, you know, a person who kind of came, came seemed to come from nowhere and hadn't, was, you, could, you couldn't kind of... Uh, put them in a box and say oh this is a this is what a football manager is uh and then with Florence Foster Jenkins the whole the kind of the woman in a man's world uh aspect I suppose I don't know am I am I really just uh, stretching the analogy here maybe I think you've done more thinking about it than, than I've done Dave it's got to yeah, be said. when people offer you money to write words it's pretty compelling isn't it that's is, is any uh, other reason given or needed uh, well, Florence and Victoria both liked making audiences laugh. Or, right. or no, they were both capable of making audiences laugh, but one of them did it deliberately and the other one um, didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. As for Arsene, there's no overlap with Arsene and Victoria, I don't L- think. Let's just start with your starting point. Um, so you said you, you met her when she was making Dinner Ladies. How, how did that come about? Well, I was uh, a, a jobbing arts journalist. I'd written mainly for broadsheet newspapers and I'd started writing features for the Radio Times and I was sent along to write a, a thing about the making of the second series. So I went along, I met Victoria and all the cast and Jeff Posner, the uh, producer-director, and talked to them all and uh, wrote my piece. And, uh that, you know, that I'd, it was fascinating to see her at work and to hear the others talk about her and also to talk to Jeff, who, you know, who had been so important in, in the development of Victoria's uh, career mm. on uh, in television comedy. Yeah, uh, but, and is in um, himself comedy royalty, because mm. I, I know Jeff 
because of uh, positive I worked with David Tyler who who you know they have a, quite a small office in central London and when I first met Jeff Posner and you then look at his CV you think oh you directed quite a lot of my childhood yeah uh, you know to me you know I have watched pretty much every single thing that Jeff mm-hmm. Posner has directed so meeting these people is really quite something isn't it yeah, I mean, he, he is a, a, a bit of a giant, isn't he? Yeah. Um, not, not necessarily an actual stature, but um, uh, can you delete that, please? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but Jeff, no, I went to that office as well to, to meet Jeff and had several conversations with him over the course of, of, making, of, of doing the research on this book. Yeah. He, he actually, the first time I met him, he said something about the difference between Victoria doing comedy writing sitcom and how Americans do sitcom, uh, which is germane to what I think we're going to talk about, Dinner Ladies, um, uh, in that, you know, Victoria did it entirely on her own, which was, I mean, it's sort of, you know, unheard of for someone to write an entire sitcom on their own and be in it. Uh, Victoria then went off and what did she do in the following year? She did all the trimmings, um, and went on tour in 2001 and I interviewed her again a couple of times that year and her, she has a some by then she had someone who'd been doing her personal publicity for about 10 years by then called Neil Redding who who also does Dawn French and Lenny Henry and others and she must have said to Neil she thinks you're all right or, or rather she must have said to Neil uh, I'll, I'll, I'm prepared to talk to him again um, and that just kept on happening for, for 10 years. Yeah, that's no small thing to get that sort of stamp of approval because the, the more you read about her, the more you realise that she was quite difficult. And by, by, by that I mean you just assume that she is the, 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 the woman who presents on, on the stage who just seems to be a normal, like your friend's mum or something. And yeah. actually she, she was not like that particularly, was she? Um, no, she wasn't. But she was very pragmatic about interviews. She knew mm. she had to do them, and uh, and you know, some so there were some interviews she did. She absolutely hated. There's one one interview she did with Paul Morley in 1987. She really, uh, they really didn't see the point of each other at all. And he 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 wrote a, a piece whose whose headline was weird. Um, uh, I can't remember which magazine it was for. It was a long piece, and uh, so but she, like, you know, like all which, Paul Morley pieces, then it was about him. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, uh, uh, but um, so she did, you know, people like James Rampton or E. Jane Dixon, you know, she did do a lot of interviews with them as well. Yeah. And other people she interviewed, was interviewed by more than once. But I just happened to keep on getting asked back. And uh, mm. and because there was so much to ask her about and, you know, there was, you know, I did not, I would not ask her just about what she was currently doing, but ask her lots of questions about um, about her childhood and previous big moments in her career and indeed in the you know the struggles before she actually made it and and I was able to draw on these I had about 25,000 words of interview transcript to draw on when I that's a pretty good start isn't it uh it was a very good base yeah and I think the one thing that we say on this podcast a lot when we're talking about scripts that we read uh sitcom scripts uh that people are writing is they do need to be more than the sum total of the parts so th- three jokes per page is great. And in some senses, it's, it's a bit of a basic. It's a lot harder to achieve than you do. But even if you achieve that, it doth a sitcom not make. Um, and actually, 
she's kind of done all the hard yards. So it's all coming together for dinner ladies. So let, let's get into yeah. that. 20, 20 years after she sort of starts out, or 20, almost 20 years since talent, she finally gets to do a, a sitcom. So how did that, yeah, how did that happen? Well, um, so to do a very rapid history, uh, the, the mid eighties were those kind of that period of extraordinary triumph uh, when she was doing two series of As Seen on TV plus the special. Uh, then, uh, you know, and at the same time, she was learning how to be a stand-up comedian and, you know, culminating in uh, an audience with Victoria Wood. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1990s, well, it, at, the end of the, at the end of the 80s, she did that series of half-hour playlets, which were t came under the title Victoria Wood, uh, you know, things like Mensana and Thingamadoodah and uh, uh, um, the, the library, staying one, in, etc. Uh, which are actually, I mean, they do have they do have a lot of great stuff in them, but she was unhappy with them because they weren't in, recorded in front of an audience. So she was, when Dinner Ladies came around, she had basically not made a television comedy series for very nearly a decade. Um, she had become the preeminent stand-up comedian of her generation. She'd made Pat and Margaret, which is a highly, uh, uh, you know, for, for her biographer, it's a, a kind of rich, uh, it's, it's a goldmine because there's, there's so much in it about her life. But um, she was ready, finally, in 1998 uh, or 97 when she started thinking about it to do a, a sitcom. She had prevaricated because she did in the, in the late 80s, she thought, she fancied doing a sitcom and then she said that absolutely fabulous came along and i thought actually she said i haven't got that edge uh, and when jennifer saunders did that i thought actually i've missed my moment i don't think i can do a sitcom but then she started thinking about it and and she rang up jeff posner and said i want to do a sitcom and i want to do it set in a workplace and i want it to be a gang comedy like dad's army um and she, you know she knew she knew that she wanted it to be principally uh, about women and when I was looking through her archive, there was a vast bunch of boxes that came to my house. I was going through the, the dinner ladies boxes and there was this notebook um, with her writing down her first thoughts about what dinner ladies would be, writing down names, writing down characters, character types. Um, and I mean, what she said was she was aiming for plotlessness. Right. She didn't want much to happen, she just wanted people to talk to each other, which is kind of essentially what happens in Dinner Ladies. You've got these women who work in this factory canteen who just talk to each other about their lives and mainly about sex. I mean, there is an extraordinary amount of discussion of sex in uh, Dinner Ladies. Um, some of it, you know, very sophisticated, uh, um, you know, sort of yeah. Victoria Wood type humour. Some of it fantastically crude and quite basic. Yeah, I just went back to some of it because um, it was it, when it first um, was out. It yeah. came on when like, I just left university and I did not particularly want to watch mainstream television. So yeah. this colossally important show, which which ended its final episode with about 14, 15 million viewers or something absurd like that on the it was on the millennium, wasn't it, or something? It was January That's 2000, right. 2000. Huge show. And I just thought, and I'd kind of forgotten about it. And I went back to it just to have a look at it and just thought, actually, I could watch this with my kids. Maybe I could, oh, new. <laughs> my daughters who are 10 and 12. No, I don't think they're quite ready for this yet. Um, it's, there are some shows where it's sort of over their heads. But with this one, you just think, I don't think this is over their heads quite enough. So I think we'll leave this a couple of years. Well, if you, I mean, yes, 
I agree, but there's a hell of a lot of stuff which is which is both sort of completely. There's a lot of double entendre stuff. So, yeah. uh, for example, I don't know, just going through the kind of the really funny and, and famous lines. You know, can can you spread them for Tony? Which is a, <laughs> which is which is about spreading uh, toast. Or yeah. where's my where's my Clint? Yeah. Uh, or or can you smell my Charlie? Which Anne Reed absolutely hated saying, but she said, but you wouldn't you wouldn't um, you wouldn't argue with her. Um, and then I was I was just uh, I'd forgotten this line. I rewatched to prepare for this um, podcast. I rewatched. Oh, bless uh, you, sir. Bless you. Uh, well, with great pleasure, because there's always there's always more to see in it. But I just watched all eight hours of it um, in the last uh, week or so. Uh, but there's in the towards the end, uh, Petula Gordino, who's played by Julie Walters, um, uh, Bren, played by Victoria's mother. Um, they, there's a, there's a kind of line about nipples, uh, and. Uh, and how they're not really, they're a sort of biological non-necessity for men. And then Pacino says, I always found it quite a handy marker. If I was working my way up to a man's face with my eyes shut. Now, the more you think about that, you think, my God, has Victoria, she's really, she's talking about, about she's talking about really filthy stuff there, which had never been in her uh, comedy before. Yeah. Um, or, you know, with, with Anne Reid, uh, there's some quite crude stuff where Anne Reed, right at the end, um, her character, uh, Jean, is is uh, put for into a relationship with uh, with Duncan Preston's handyman Stan, uh, which which Victoria discovered. Neither of them are particularly keen on, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it happened. And uh, uh, Jean is having very good sex with Stan, and uh, when someone asks her, "Is he is he laying a new lino?" and she just says, "He's laying anything he wants to lay." She says with an absolutely filthy smirk on her face. <laughs> so she she but she established right at the start that this was about sex. You know, when when, when did you, most episodes start with them all arriving in work, and it's it's principally uh, Bren and Tony, played by Andy Dunn, who's this lovable uh, man who's sort of he quite likes women in a sad, baffled sort of way. He says, but he doesn't really <laughs> understand them. And uh, he is, he's a sort of likeable porn addict uh, who's always sort of, and a sex pest. You couldn't do his character now. He's always mm. asking women for sex. Uh, I mean, it's completely, you, you, you couldn't do it now. But, but right at the start of the first episode, he says, did you get any bread? Any what? Any sex? She said, no, I had to go to laundrette. <laughs> and uh, and that, is, that is the way Victoria joked about sex throughout her career that she made, she, 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 she uh, made sex the equivalent of any kind of domestic task. Mm. I, I, I thought, <laughs> um, actually, I mean, I was quite, really quite shocked uh, reading the, 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 the beginning, some of the people, uh, the, the, the sort of casual way you talk about uh, some of the people that she met on, on her way up in, in her sort of late teens, early 20s, the fact that she was kind of quite very well developed for her age. And that she, she's basically just getting hit on the whole time by all these kind of seedy old men in, in uh, northern cabaret clubs and things. And, and, it, it, and yeah, as you say, I mean, that kind of thing now would just be, uh, people would, would be, people just would not stand for that now, would they really? No. I mean, she was, she was being pestered uh, in bus stops when she was going home from school at, uh, in Bury in the 1960s. But I mean, I was aware that I was partly writing a, a kind of, you know, in the background, there is a, a kind of history of the culture of television changing over the years, starting with what she had to put up with in the, uh, in the 1970s, you know, in the green room at uh, uh, 
new faces who was it can't remember who it was saying wouldn't mind a bit of that well i can tell you who it was because i wrote down the quote which i thought was one well, such a funny line uh it was ted ray uh yeah there we go he said uh she yeah. said i'd never seen anyone that that pissed before who was still standing which i just thought yeah <laughs> fantastic line but i was just interested to go to to come back to to uh dinner ladies and and you mentioned that um Anne reed and uh and um Thelma Barlow as well, the characters that they play, uh, and there's a um, there's a, a moment you mentioned where she's trying to kind of come up with the right names for this little double act uh, of, of um, uh, Anne Reed and Thelma Barlow, and uh, you've got this list of names, and it goes Doreen, Noreen, Maureen, Irene, Eileen, Nesta, Denise, Deirdre, Daphne, and Jilly, and then it and then it ends up being Dolly and Jean, and I just thought. Almost that's almost like a Victoria Woods song, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love, but you know, love she was detail, she was attention to detail there for the names. She was she was great at naming people. I mean, she loved. She, the, the, I remember hearing her talking about how her name, the, the names for her characters, you know, came out of the world she grew up in. I mean, there is a character in the second series played by Joanne uh, Froggart uh, called Sigourney. Um, who's just a work experience girl. And that, you know, that's a joke that someone would be called Sigourney uh, working in that canteen. Um, but generally speaking, her names come from an early, earlier age. And that list that you just read out just completely uh, yeah. uh, encapsulates that. But then we talk was, about, go on. It was also, it's not just about sex, it's about women's bodies. Uh, mm. um, you know, here we are, three men talking about dinner ladies. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we are. Well, we're a man all basically, and we're mansplaining Victoria here between us. But, uh, well, you uh, wrote the book. I wrote the book, and and uh, that's true. But anyway, uh, I just thought I'd get that in. I feel unapologetic about having been asked to write the book. But, well, there you go. Um, um, but you know, it's all about. Um, you you just read out a uh, a list, Dave. I'm going to read out a list also from the book uh, that that um, uh, Dinner Ladies, the first series, is. Uh, they talk about mood swings, thrush, bras, cystitis, insemination by turkey based, the visible nipples, periods, irritable bowel syndrome, yeast infections, HRT patches, fallopian tubes, orgasms, and pelvic claws, culminating in, in one of the great uh, sort of um, exchanges in that first series when Dolly, played by Thelma Barlow, who's, uh, who's a very sort of prissy and, uh, and uh, um, obsessed with her weight, um, says, I've. I've uh, yeah, I've got, I've got, I've worked on my pelvic floor. She says, Jean has more or less let hers dangle. Now, Jean, and Jean, played by Anne Reed, says, and where's it got you having a pelvic floor like a bulldog clip? What an absolutely brilliant, uh, just That's wonderful. That's very funny. Um, the, um, and as, but as you were reading that list as well, though, I was just thinking, is it any wonder that, uh, that Mrs. Brown's boys should be so popular? Because there's clearly an appetite for that kind of, very mainstream and, and broad in uh, kind of filth. I mean, and it, it is it is filth. It's mm. it's filth that's kind of artfully done and done with great um, yeah with with great skill. Um, but, and there's no harm. Yeah, it's, it's if people like that, that's 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 great. It's not particularly to my taste. Maybe that's why I also didn't uh, engage with it at the time so much. 
Um, it, it's, I, would, I would say, though, that the difference between um, uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys and Dinner Ladies is that Dinner Ladies preceded by, you know, the best part of two decades. This stuff had not been... Yeah. Had not been uh, talked about in sitcoms before. It's yeah, just yeah. like, you know, uh, Victoria's joke from the early 80s uh, from her when she was starting out as a stand-up. And she, the only joke she wrote with her husband, Jeffrey Durham, uh, was about the, you know, she said, I, I paraphrase, but it's something like, you know, I was, I had a terrible problem with sex when I, you know, with my first boyfriend, because he was dyslexic, you know, he, he got, you know, he got, he had this sex man manual, but he was dyslexic. I was lying there and he was looking for my vinegar. Now that is, it's an absolutely brilliant, you know, set up and, and yeah. you know, how, uh, but um, in 1982, when she wrote that, the yeah. word that she is alluding to yeah. had never been said in uh, television comedy or stand-up comedy. Yeah. And there she was in 1982 alluding to it, yeah. uh, albeit in a shrouded way and in a funny way, but it was incredibly yeah. daring and yeah. unprecedented. And I think that Dinner Ladies was still doing this in 1998. Yes, and things were not anywhere near as progressive as we think you were. When you look back and you Ooh. see what else is being made and what else, if you quite often when you go back, you just think, oh, goodness. I mean, this is kind of men behaving badly era as well, isn't it, I think? Um, that had probably just about finished uh, by then. Um mm. And it's you watch it now and you just think, oh goodness, that that's quite traditional in many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but let's just talk about the writing in terms of, as we mentioned at the start, the fact that she kind of completely carried the burden on her own, which, as you say, is quite unusual because even though UK shows have short runs, you know, I, you know, I I'm one of the people whose name's at the end of Miranda. Dave's got his name at the end of um, Not Going Out, and they have help even if they are prodigiously talented, as is Miranda, as is Lee Mack, as is um, Jack D, uh, who writes with uh, our mate uh, Pete Sinclair. Um, so there's always somebody kicking around in the background who's very happy to, you know, to, to, to put, put things together and add extra jokes and, you know, do some scaffolding work on the, on the plot and all that kind of stuff. But Victoria Wood just sort of wasn't having any of that, was there? There was no question of it and... But not only that, is it seems like she was not particularly open to people changing her lines in any way at all. No, uh, no, so that must wasn't. have been quite an interesting experience for for the cast and who knew her, presumably. Uh, you know, they'd worked a lot together on most of them uh, before at various points. Uh, so so tell us, why don't you talk a bit about that? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. But I'll start with uh, the your initial point about how she didn't want to share the writing. Um, I remember... It was very striking. Uh, my, one of the quotes I really remember her saying to me was, was uh, you know, when she was writing the second series, which was 10 episodes, so, you know, yeah. longer than a standard uh, sitcom series of that era. Uh, and she, you know, she got very bogged down uh, and uh, worried that, you know, she wasn't, she, it wasn't going well. And, and she said, what I really wanted was to be, you know, to have someone like Woody Allen has Tony Roberts to talk to when he's wandering around the streets of New York. He's got someone he can bounce ideas off. And I really wanted a Tony Roberts figure, but, but just to talk about it, I don't want to write it with anyone. She did not, you know, her mm. imagination was in and of itself entire, and she didn't want to, uh, you know, have people firing atoms, you know, mm. into her brain. And indeed, when she went to a script meeting 
at some point during the the, the genesis of that uh, or the gestation of that second series, uh, someone who was very close to her management said, "Well, why don't you have someone you know come in? Why don't you have a Tony Roberts type figure to come and uh, uh, help you write it?" And she just did one of her side eyes. Uh, and as Jeff Posner described to me and said, mm. I don't think that's going to happen. And I remember Jeff saying to me, I think, you know, it was someone who should have known better. Wow. Uh, that Victoria was not in that sense at the creative writing stage was not a collaborator. She had to do it on her own. She used to say, even when she was writing as seen on TV, she would say, I didn't spend four months chewing a biro uh, to listen to whoever it might be ad-libbing my lines she wrote it as music this is going to sound pretentious but she was like mozart you didn't take you don't take the notes take the words out it sounds wrong take notes out of mozart it doesn't it sounds wrong it, um, it might and, sound pretentious if it was anyone other than victoria wood because uh, i mean yeah you know every word yeah. of every sketch in, 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 at, at her height is just you know a thing of beauty really um, yes. But also the music yeah. is integral to her. We did a we did a, um, an episode quite a while back with a guy called Jason Hazley, who writes with Joel Morris and they write with uh, Charlie Brooker and they do lots of that kind of stuff. And and sometimes Jason Hazley also plays keyboards for Portishead, uh, you know, because that, that that those opportunities open up now and then. And actually, he was in a a, a a group called Ben and Jason, and he could have been a musician. And well, he is a musician. But yeah. he was he was adamant about how comedy is music, and there is a rhythm to it, and you know no no one would embody that probably more than Victoria Wood, who was known for her songs initially, and is crafted and just everything has that rhythm to it. It is relentless, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the fa the really famous line said by Anne Reid, uh, which is you know this won't be the first time I've quoted this, but. Uh, um, it's it's when it's when Dolly is talking. It's it's the perfect Victoria Wood word cluster, right? And in fact, it's not one. It it sort of builds up the uh, so it's not said all in one line, but uh, but it just the momentum of it is just you, you know so so perfectly constructed. Um, she go. She's talking about um, she's talking about her auntie Dot or, or her husband's auntie Dot. His auntie Dot from Cockermouth at a raffia drinks coaster she thought it was a high fiber biscuit she had to be held back from moving down the table and buttering two more <laughs> you can't you can't change it's not only that you can't change a word of that yeah you can't change a syllable or even a even a consonant of it mm. i mean it's just absolutely perfect um and uh and only she could do that yeah i mean one of the bits of advice we give uh, that i would give to writers and i've worked with various people who do also just say you know that if you find a funny actor kind of let them let them do it you know let them get on with it and if they you know and if they change it well you're you're aren't you lucky to be working with a really funny comedy actor who is improving your writing to which the answer normally is yes um but i guess if you're victoria wood then uh the answer to that is no but you you she'd kind of earned that as well though hadn't she because a new writer doesn't quite get to be as um uh, prescriptive as that but if you've got uh, Victoria Wood as seen on TV behind you and you've done an audience with and you've done a whole load of flawless sketch writing and vignettes and all that kind of stuff you, you do sort of get to 
Paul Rank and just she, say, no, no, no. You but she was always it, like that, well. though, wasn't she? Yeah, there's a, a stories that you tell very early on where she's do, doing like theatre, amateur drama with uh, 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 the youth theatre. And she's, she's like that then, isn't she? She's never changed. Um, I don't know how prescriptive she was in the in the Rochdale Youth Theatre workshop about her stuff, but she. Uh, you can imagine, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she was. I, 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 I don't know, but I mean, the interesting thing is is that you know she met Julie really early on, and she, you know, with Julie she found someone she could be funny with, and she knew that she she couldn't she 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 found someone who could say her lines, uh, and who she could write for, and then when. Uh, as seen on TV, came along. She'd already worked with Duncan a couple of times, Duncan Preston, and she knew she'd known Celia Imry for uh, quite a number of years. She met them before she met her, before she met any of the others, and she she built up a kind of a, a, a sort of understanding with them. And uh, so that by the time uh, dinner ladies came round, uh, the first person she wrote to was Julie to say, "I want to do the sitcom. Will you be in it?" Uh, and this was a whole year before it was recorded. Uh, and Julie said, yes, absolutely. Um, and then uh, and she contacted Julie, uh, Cecilia, and uh, Duncan was the first actor whose name she wrote in that notebook uh, when she was... Um, oh. she, she just wrote Dunk. So um, uh, so she, she trusted them. And, they, yeah. and there was a great mutual respect between mm. her and her gang. Yeah. But you know, they had already known from other work that they'd done with her that she 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 was insistent that they they write what she had written. Yeah. And, uh, but it was because of the very nature of what was happening on Dinner Ladies that it became more stressful. And I, you know, I when in when people have been reviewing this book and talking about it, they have all uh, alighted on the Dinner Ladies chapter and they've said, "Oh, oh, she was tough to work with." Uh, I didn't realise, you know, oh, God, sounds like her, her company didn't really like her very much. I mean, it's just, it was a moment of profound stress in which she was producing this this mainstream masterpiece, mm. uh, which she had spent the first series six months writing on her own in a room. And the thing we haven't mentioned yet is that uniquely for any sitcom before, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, any sitcom since, uh, Peter Salmon, who was then controller of the BBC One, accepted the idea that was put to him by Victoria and Jeff Posner that they record it over two nights mm. on Friday night and Saturday night. And uh, that idea came to them because she said to Jeff one day, you know, I really like the idea of, you know, with uh, Cheers, uh, shows like Cheers, they, they, they record the dress rehearsal so that they can look and see how it works in front of an audience and then make changes for the actual recording. And Jeff just said to her, well, why don't we just record it twice? Uh, and Peter Salmon was prepared to stump up the money. Wow. Uh, cost a third extra to do so, but but he said it's Victoria, so uh, Victoria would. So we'll pay for it. But that did mean that Victoria, who was already a kind of perfectionist workaholic, who had spent all this time, uh, she would get into the rehearsal room. She would hear her scripts read on the Monday morning by the cast. Uh, she would uh, then start to change things. They would have to be word perfect without their scripts by Wednesday. Then they did the kind of technical rehearsal on, on Thursday. They got in on Friday uh, and rehearsed and then recorded it in front of an audience on Friday night. 
then on Saturday morning, she would watch the tape with Jeff Posner and, and change a lot of stuff. So, uh, and she would, so the cast, some of whom were not young, uh, had to relearn a lot of their lines and they got used to this, but they did, they did uh, moan and grumble and... Uh, uh, yeah, they had to learn new lines object. and not get them wrong. Um, and not get them wrong. So she, and they felt her invigilating them as they were learning this stuff. And they, you know, they found it difficult and stressful. And it was more stressful in the second series because this was, uh, you know, there were suddenly, there were 10 episodes. Um, That's a punishing schedule. And Duncan, Duncan in particular, uh, I think he did find it, you know, he became impatient with it. And they did have a bit of a bust up uh, early on in the making of the second series. But uh, the other thing that, that I've not mentioned yet is that Victoria, because she was rewriting and rewriting the whole time because she wanted to perfect these scripts, which she'd written in a, in a vacuum in her office, mm. suddenly when they, when they had the chemical reaction with the casts, uh, uh, the, the cast reading them, she wanted to improve them. So she started to write deep into the night. So she would come in, uh, sometimes having barely slept. Uh, yeah. So she was completely knackered as well so that it is yeah the, the, the actual punishing schedule of a, of a, a studio sitcom i mean I, I, yeah. it only occurred to me i've done i've written episodes of uh, my hero <clears throat> and my family and i've done that i've done that week you know um and it's when it's your week your episode it's and i'm not learning it but i'm going in and we're doing rewrites and we're shifting it and it's a lot of pressure and on the night you've got two and a half hours to tape it and if you haven't taped it you haven't got it yeah. Um, and it's amazing. It was only when I, I did uh, co-write a couple of episodes of the last series of Citizen Khan. It was only when I was doing that, I just thought, wow, the last fringe play I did got more rehearsal than this. And yeah. this, is being, this is being recorded and broadcast and will be available to the rest of human history for all time. Um, and yet here we are basically running through the scenes, uh, stand there, look that way. Oh, he, that prop's too big. Can we get a different prop? Um, oh, he started saying this line, that line that doesn't make any sense because in scene seven, he's going to say this and those two things aren't going to match. And it's just like, it's just an absolute scramble. And everyone's very professional about it. And at the peak of their, you know, they're on their best behavior normally and at the peak of their powers. But it is brutal. But then if you're adding that extra layer of, yeah, well, I'll watch the tape and then I'll do it again. We'll re-rehearse it. We'll re-record it. Oh, and then not only that, but you know, I, I did a whole uh, season on my family, which was thirteen weeks. But uh, you know, you get to um, you record. They record it on Thursday night, so that's that episode over. They're back in Friday morning with the script for next Thursday's show. So there's uh, and then there's uh, the weekend is when the writers are all rewriting it. But then they get the script again on Monday. They've got from Monday. Uh, to Thursday to to learn and know the script and get it all done uh, and then <laughs> back on Friday to do the next one so it uh, must have been and for, for her doing all of that stuff was just that's that's in, that is you know that is incredible really and presumably um, why there's no series three well Victoria never liked to repeat herself so uh, she I mean somewhat that Peter Salmon did say hey how about doing another series and she, she'd had enough she'd done it she did she she'd done her sitcom she didn't want to do another one yeah um, but uh, um, I mean the other thing to say about the genesis of the show is that it's very hard to believe by looking at it um, but 
other than Cheers and Dad's Army as the sort of classic gang sitcom of British television, um, she also, the template that she sort of bizarrely was ER. And it's, it's because of ER that there is uh, a lowercase um, D in Dinner Ladies. Um, because, you know, when, when ER, the two letters of ER come up on the screen, um, it, they're in lowercase. So it's a that, real pain for autocorrect, that, that lowercase D. Yeah. Um, I, and I, have, I was insistent to the publishers. I said, this, this, uh, this D has to be lowercase. Um, and I don't know whether people reading it are thinking, oh, God, please can you cap up Dinner Ladies. But anyway, um, it's, uh, she wanted to have the fluidity of movement on the, uh, on the screen and in the studio uh, in the recording studio that ER had. And it became apparent very, very rapidly that if you've got a sodding great toaster island in the middle of the thing and a massive great counter uh, and, and a table at the front where people are, you know, spreading marge on bread, that, that there wasn't going to be much movement. So uh, the, the dream of having ER, uh, the fluidity of ER uh, replicated in Dinner Ladies didn't come to pass. Uh, and actually, I mean, just moving on, just as a kind of little footnote, that when, when she did all the trimmings the, uh, uh, in 2000, there is a, a sketch uh, called WI, uh, which is absolutely filmed in the style of, of, uh, of ER. So she managed to get her ER um, spoof uh, on, on screen in the end. But any, anyway, so, so she did used to complain, or, or, or rather when... Dinner Ladies finally appeared on screen in uh, November 1998, uh, the, about two weeks before the royal family appeared on British screens for the first time. And she looked at it in horror because she suddenly thought, I have written a sitcom that looks like it comes from the 1970s with lots of kind of uh, pink-faced people in brightly coloured clothing standing in a row. Um, and it does indeed, because of the restrictions created by that set, um, people did have to stand in a row and it does look a little bit crude yeah. and the kind of single camera, um, no laugh track, uh, a did no audience uh, vibe of, um, of the Royal family did, did, she did take it as a sudden kind of shock to the system that she thought, oh my God, this I, I, I have just basically been told by this program that I'm a dinosaur. I'm, I'm putting words into her mouth there. Yeah, I and, can see that there was a big shift because then that was because yeah. people forget actually the royal family because they kind of think it all started with the office. And actually, the, the office was a year later, wasn't it? A couple of years um, later, uh, later uh, actually. Mm. Yeah, but I think also um, the, the, the sense that, um, you know, and now when people come to us and say, I want to write sitcom, and um, they say, oh, what do you want to write? Oh, I want to write Fleabag. Oh, I want to write Mrs. Brown Boys. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's room, there is room for all of these things. I mean, a, a, a London executive might have thought, hmm, too two uh, female-based northern working-class type sitcoms. That's two more than we've had in the last 20 years. That might, that, that, that's, quite a, that's quite an unusual coincidence, I think. But apart from that, they're just, they're, they're just two very different uh, shows, really, I think. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I wondered, um, I was just interested, you mentioned, uh, actually, in the, some of the correspondence um, that uh, 
somebody who wrote to uh, Victoria at the time that she was doing Dinner Ladies, uh, asking about pitching uh, sitcom. Yeah, well, yeah. As, as apropos what you're saying about about people saying I want to write the new whatever, mm. um, she did. Uh, I mean, I had access to lots of her correspondence, um, and I didn't include this in the book, uh, or I did initially, but it, it got culled um, just for space. So How long was the book originally? Here. Yes, that's right. Because it's <laughs> 500 pages. It's value for money. But how long was it when you sent it off? Um, it is just over 200,000 words now. Right. And it was, it was, it's probably, it's about 205 or six, I think now. And uh, when I, I think it was 219 okay. when I submitted it. So it wasn't much longer. And okay. we, can, we can have a discussion about the length of the book if you want. But no, I'd, no, I'd, no, it's fine. I'd, yeah. like, I'd like to, it's a sensitive subject. Okay. Uh, I'd, okay. I'd like to answer Dave's question if I may. Please do. Here's your, here's your, your, your podcast uh, exclusive um, that someone wrote to Victoria um, who had uh, an aspiring writer who had written a sitcom about or had an idea for a sitcom about um, set in a betting shop. And uh, so he sent this letter in, in October um, 1998, you know, a month before Dinner Ladies. So Dinner Ladies was first screened. So she was full of the mechanics of sitcom, having spent the whole year thinking about Dinner Ladies. So she sent this letter, and I quote from it uh, selectively. She said, um, all good sitcoms create a believable world of their own, and that is what you seem to have done. All TV companies are looking for the next fools and horses or one foot in the grave. There is a real dearth of original ideas. And she said, just the basic idea and setting, and uh, 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 she suggests that, that he pitched just the basic idea and the setting as brief and interesting uh, as, as you can make it. Um, you must stress that this is a new idea. No one has looked at gambling and the betting shop is an unfamiliar and therefore interesting environment for viewers. And it lends itself well to an ensemble piece. Also, she added, it's miles away from all that deadly middle-class angst, two people on a sofa we're all so sick of. So she sent this letter off to him. And uh, a little bit later, he wrote to, to her to say, I'm very sorry, I haven't received your reply. <laughs> so uh, this is, I can't think of anyone else who would have done this. Victoria wrote the whole letter again, and it's probably a kind of 800 word letter or something, giving the same advice, but in different words. So a, a few weeks later, she sent another letter just saying comedy, suggesting uh, that it, he he either write a comedy drama in a set in a realistic setting or a sitcom in a studio with an audience. He needed to decide which of these two things he would do. Uh, he said, I you would need to think very hard where the main core of the action is to be. And, and then she said, you have a new bunch of characters to introduce to us. And that is what drives all comedy, not the setting. All comedies have, all companies, she then added, finally, have resident writers they like to use. Uh, what they're all painfully short of is original ideas. Um, also, most of them uh, have a very middle-class Soho sort of existence, far removed from that of the audience they're trying to reach. So there is, within uh, these letters, that, and there's much, much more in these two mm. letters, that there is, there is a kind of kernel of... Uh, a, a manifesto of what she believes an original but mainstream sitcom yeah there's an interesting thing a comment on the industry which we'll get to in a second but just a side note to say 
the number of times I've said on this podcast, Ooh. let's say, for example, you're going to set a sitcom in a betting shop. That's the one that I always use Spooky. as a placeholder for... There's never been a sitcom in a betting shop. So let's say, you know, for the sake of argument, your sitcom is set in a betting shop. So when the moment you said betting shop just then, I, I think a whole load of listeners might have. In fact, if, the, if, if, you had, if you're playing the sitcom geeks drinking game, uh, then, uh, then I, hope, I, I hope you had the, the sip at the right time. Well, so, another, sm- another small footnote is that she wrote that before the first series. And then uh, lest we forget in the second series, there is an episode called Gamble in which all of yeah. the cast are having uh, uh, bets about whether uh, Tony and whether or when Tony and Bren are going to have sex with each other. Right. So, so, so maybe it's sort of in a subliminal way influenced her. Yeah. Well, Jasper, thanks so, um, so much for giving up your time. Thank and you. we're really excited to be talking about her, um, this great, uh, great comedy presence in our lives. And yeah, so thanks very much for listening, everybody. Cheers, Dave. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. Uh, and it is a really good book. I, I, try, oh. I tried to uh, get to dinner, ladies, because so, I knew that's what we'd be talking about. But I was just too interested in everything that yeah. came before it. I tried and failed to skim read, <laughs> and I was reading it, exactly. uh, which is why I haven't got to the end yet. Mm. So, uh, so brilliant. Thank you, Jasper. I'm, I'm taking that as an endorsement. Uh, and the best of the best kind. I really enjoyed it. It's great to have the opportunity to to bang on about Victoria very extensively. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much, and we'll speak to you next time. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.